Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I am here with another wonderful guest. I knew going into this interview that I was probably going to have to split it into two or three podcasts. Uh, as it turned out, it was two uh, because we both uh, we both had other things that we needed to do. And uh, we had to kind of cut it at uh, a little over two hours. And uh, I think 18 minutes is where it ended up after uh, after the editing process was done. But I had a wonderful time talking to Chandra. I met her when she was attending one of the many award uh, banquet events that she uh, was involved with for her video. And uh, she was here doing one of them in Vegas. And she was traveling with Dev Ross, my dear friend from episode 50 of the Haskin Cast podcast, who uh, that's a wonderful show, one of the best. If you haven't listened to that, uh, after this one's done, go back and listen to episode 50 uh, and then all the other ones. But uh, we ended up talking for like, it had to be four or five hours. And, the, you know, the conversation was just flowing. And if I didn't have to be up early the next day, uh, we'd probably still be there. And that was months ago. So I knew that we were going to have a really good conversation. I was really excited to bring her on the show. We talked about so many great things. So here's kind of the schedule over the uh, the rest of the month here. So this is Wednesday, and uh, in real time, this is Wednesday that you're listening to this if you're listening on release day, and this will be the first part of her episode. Then I will be off to the NAM show in Anaheim, California, the National Association of Musical Merchandisers, which means we get to see all the cool new gear that's coming out. Um, it's kind of a combination of, uh, you know, new gear, networking event and family reunion, because uh, if you guys listen to my wrap up from last year, it's like the one time that I get to see a lot of people that uh, that I only get to see once a year at the show because we're all busy. We live all over the world. And uh, fortunately, I don't live that far from it. So I will be headed out uh, to go attend that after I take my my one day off at uh, the beach is my first day where I just kind of decompress and relax and enjoy uh, nature and the world. And I'll be having lunch with a, a good friend of mine, uh, then back to the beach to watch the magical sunset there. It's absolutely beautiful every time I go. And uh, and I love it. So that's my, my uh, decompression day. And since it's leap year, I have to wait an extra day this time until next year. But I will be ready for it when it comes. I'm ready for it now, but I have to wait a few days. So, uh, so this week is, is the first part of Chandra's interview. Next week, I will be doing my NAM wrap up. And then the following week, which I believe will be the last episode in January, uh, I will bring you the second half of Chandra's interview. In the meantime, I've got a couple of other things scheduled that if they work out, I'll be bringing you a couple of special Saturday episodes as we head to the magic 100, uh, 100th episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I'm so excited about this for one I didn't know that I would make it this far. I mean, I've said from the beginning, I want to get 300 episodes in, but you know, uh, it's been a challenge and it's been very time consuming, but I enjoy it. I get so much feedback from people that uh, they say they enjoy the show. So uh, I I definitely uh, am am going to do what I can to keep it going and uh, definitely will be ramping up to episode 100. I've already done the interview and it was phenomenal. 
I'm so excited. So I'll be getting there as quickly as I can. Uh, but in the meantime, everyone that I speak to is uh, has absolutely been wonderful. And I'm so thankful for everybody who takes time out of their day to uh, to come on the show, to answer my questions, to deal with the scheduling and, uh, you know, the uh, the spiel I give before we start recording of kind of how the show works, all that good stuff. And uh, I really appreciate everyone's patience and their effort. And, and I appreciate all the listeners, you know, without you guys, what would be the point of doing it? I mean, I enjoy it and all, but there's other things I could be doing if no one was listening to the show. So thank you guys uh, very, very much. If you would like to, uh, you know, spread the word, you can help share. You can give me a rating on Apple Podcasts, on Podbean, on Google Play, wherever it is that you listen. I guess iTunes or, or Apple Podcasts now, I guess, is kind of the uh, the biggest one where the most people listen to podcasts. Uh, but, you know, I because I distribute through Podbean, um, I have the Podbean app and I listen to all most of my podcasts there. If they're not available on Podbean, then I check Apple Podcasts just because it's simpler for me. Uh, and I'm, you know, I don't have a lot of time, but when I do, I really like to, to try and catch up. There's some really good ones out there that I enjoy. Uh, we've talked many times about the Deep Purple podcast. I had those guys on. They were f- fantastic and I can't wait to do some more work with them. And uh, they they give me the shout out on their show from time to time, which I greatly appreciate. So uh, if you guys want to check out some great information about one of the most famous bands in history in the, in the rock and roll arena, uh, check out the Deep Purple podcast. They're, those guys are just so fun to listen to. And they're great guys, too. Uh, also, I really enjoy The Office Ladies because I was a big fan of The Office. And every episode, they break down another episode of the show and they're doing them in order. So uh, it's really kind of interesting to see as the show progresses, the experiences that they had and how things change behind the scenes. A lot of great info that you'd never hear otherwise because they were there and they can uh, they can testify to what happened. Uh, so really interesting stuff there. Uh, lots of good stuff. If you're into uh, Infocom games, Eaten by a Gru is a fantastic podcast and their theme song is, I think it's called Eaten by a Gru. Yeah, it's a it's sort of a hip hop song that I didn't even know existed until I found the show, and I thought it was written for them, but apparently it wasn't. They uh, they heard the song and uh, and really liked it as. Uh, not really my style of music, but I actually like it too. It's pretty good. Uh, and so there's all kinds of great stuff out there. I recently discovered how many podcasts there are about Atari games. You know, I grew up playing these things and uh, it's amazing. There's so many, there's podcasts that break uh, a, an episode per game. There's some that do like two or three games per episode. Uh, a lot of background stuff that I had no idea what was going on with uh, in the Atari world at the time because all I wanted to do was play games, you know. Um so I remember one early morning, uh, Saturday morning, I didn't even care to watch Saturday morning cartoons, which I loved back in the early 80s. They were fantastic. But I didn't care. I just wanted to play Asteroids. And I started a game of Asteroids somewhere around like I want to say 7, 730 in the morning. And I was still playing at lunch. And I ate lunch on the floor. My mother brought me a plate and I ate on the floor and continued to play the game. And I was still playing the game at dinner time, uh, at which somebody actually had to pick me up off the floor because I hadn't moved all day, uh, probably except to go to the bathroom. And um, I had to be picked up and brought to the dinner table. So the game stayed running the whole time. And when I finished dinner, I still had so many lives that uh, you couldn't even see them on the screen and the game was still playing. And I thought, yeah, I'm 
I'm just done. I, I'm never going to end this game unless I just do it on purpose. So I just stopped playing. have no idea what my score was, uh, but I literally played a game of Asteroids all day long, just one game. And uh, that's how dedicated I was back then. And then I would go downstairs and play drums and come back up and play games. And then sometimes I would work on uh, a book or uh, a, a text adventure game like uh, one of Infocom's games or one of Scott Adams games. And that was my childhood, man. It was it was, uh, you know, a lot of uh, <laughs> intellectual stimulation, uh, physical dexterity growth, which uh, really helped me as a drummer, I think. Uh, maybe it's just an excuse to play games. I don't know. But either way, I kind of miss it. I don't get uh, that much opportunity to do things like that anymore. Every once in a while, it's kind of nice. Uh, you can find a lot of the Atari games and a couple of the Intellivision games, I think, are, are online and playable, or you can get the ROM versions of it. But there's all kinds of podcasts about those, too. So uh, lots of cool stuff out there to listen to. And if you want to kind of broaden your horizons or get nostalgic, uh, just go to your whatever uh podcast avenue that you drive down and search for anything that you might be interested in, whether it be a celebrity. I heard some really good podcasts uh, by Dale Bozio from Missing Persons, and she also played with Frank Zappa. Uh, you know, just lots of stories that you wouldn't hear. So uh, check it out. There's so many great things. But of course, listen to all the Haskincast podcast episodes first. So, okay, that being said, it is time to bring on my guest, the lovely Miss Chandra Jefferson. She is a fabulous musician. She is a, uh, a performer. She's an actor. She's just, uh, she does all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, for those of us that do multiple things, it really gets difficult figuring out how do we promote ourselves? How do we label ourselves? How do we grab somebody from every audience that we could have uh, because they might be interested in what we do? And uh, that's one of the things that we talk about among many things, including uh, a whale that she invented as we uh, went on through the show. She actually invented a whale. So we're going to get to all of that. Enjoy my interview, part one with Chandra Jefferson. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome on to my 92nd episode of the Haskin Cast podcast, my wonderful guest who this is this is the problem that we're going to have is that we have so many things to talk about that I'm afraid that the time is just going to fly by as was, happens with so many of my guests. But she is an actress. She's a songwriter. She is just a beautiful human being. And we're going to get into all the wonderful things that she does, or at least as many of them as we can remember while we're still awake enough to do it. Let's welcome Chandra Jefferson to the show. Chandra, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for all of that. Well, it's just... it's all true. You're hard to pin down because you're you're much like me. You're all over the place. I am kind of all over the place and so are you. Yeah, that's I think that's why we get along so well. Well, we, we are very good at changing gears very quickly, too. True. I think that you have to do that in this business. Don't you feel that? I do. I mean, at least this part of the business, you have to be able to do a lot of different things. And actually, any part of the business, I think it always is advantageous to be as versatile as possible and be skilled in those things. You know, skill is really important. So, Well, what I want to know is when was the last time, if you can remember this far back, when was the last time you only had one thing to work on? Yeah, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> what a good question. I'll tell you, that, that's a good one. Wow. Well, I will tell you, um, I've done a several tours in the last, let's see, the first tour that I did with Tom, who's my husband, he's also an entertainer, was in 2008. Mm -hmm. And I remember 
thinking to myself, and we had 29 performances in one month. Oh, wow. All throughout, yeah, all throughout Phoenix. Same show, though, right? The only thing is I was also the sound person, so I was. you never knew where you were. We knew where we were going, but I didn't know what I was going to find when we were going to set up the sound. And there was a light guy with us, so I didn't have to do any of that, thank God, because, I mean, it's enough already wearing two hats. You know, you're on stage, and then you also had to set up all the gear and then tear it down. And well, we did that together, but I was running the sound. So, um, and making the adjustments cause you don't know, sometimes you're working for 750 people in a huge, beautiful theater and you're running your own sound. Right. You know? So uh, anyway, I've digressed, um, <laughs> I, which is going to happen a lot. I oh understand. yeah, that's fine. We go where it goes. You obviously know this. Uh, so anyway, I remember thinking at the time, wow, I'm actually going to just do one thing for an entire three and a half weeks. That's amazing. I don't have to write any promotion. It's all, it's already out there. We've already sold all the tickets out. It was booked a year and a half before we actually did the tour. So we had some really big houses that were really good. It was all good. And that was amazing. That was in 2008. Need I say? Well, but, but while you're in between gigs, isn't there something else? Like, are you still writing songs in your head? Are you saying, okay, well, yes, we're doing this, but I also have to work on the next thing that I've lined up. Yes. So when I did that, I was also a music director for, um, it was a religious science church in Flagstaff. Mm -hmm. And so I had somebody that filled in for me. And also Tom was coming and going there as well. So sometimes it was two of us. Most actually, most of the time it was two of us, but I was running all of it. I was putting all the music together and whatnot. So I knew I had that all in place. So I didn't have to think about that, but I did have to think about a, um, Oh gosh, there was a, a service cause it was around the Easter time and we came back for Palm Sunday. So I had to put that together. So I did have to do some things. I take it back. I did have to do that. I had to prepare that whole service. And then we kind of blew in to Flagstaff on a day off and then went back to Phoenix that same afternoon just because we had a performance the following day. Um, so hmm, I'm forgetting the question now. <laughs> <laughs> when, when was the last time you only had one thing to work on? So that was it. You know, I mean, I, I really I have so many things going. One of the reasons for that, I think, is because I do this for a living and I have many different things that I do in this business that I happen to enjoy that I need to keep plugged in and always working all the time. Do you know? I mean, it's my job. This is my day job and my night job. And most of the time it's a, a day job. Well, sure. I think there's, there's really two components to it though. There's the, obviously the financial side of it, that this is my job. This is how I pay for my food and my, my home and the equipment and everything I need. But there's also the creative side of it where are we ever really satisfied as creatives? You know, it's so funny that you asked me this question because earlier I knew you were going to ask me that question. Really? I didn't even know why I knew that. I didn't even but know I was going to ask you that question. So we're having a thing here. We are having a thing. I love it. I'm Earlier, without even talking to you, I'm actually thinking you're going to ask me this question. And my answer to this, because I was thinking, what would I say? And this is this is my answer. No, we're never we're never. I don't ever feel that. I mean, there's times when I know a performance went extremely well. Mm -hmm. And I always look for the next thing that I'm going to do. I'm like wondering, you know, how that's going to work. And and I'm always thinking I can do it better. And I don't know that I'm always 
I mean, you know, the big thing is when you watch a video of yourself and you go, oh, God, that didn't read the way I thought. It's rare that I watch something and I go, well, that was darn good. I mean, occasionally, but, you know, I always find something. And as a creator, I think we're always stretching out to do more. Um, one of the things that I learned a um, long time ago when I was first, when I was being trained and all this, since I went to school uh, at Juilliard for acting, um, is they said, you know, you always want to put yourself out on the edge because if you get comfortable, this is a real problem. It's really like a death. You, you've got to, you've got to always be stretching and throw yourself out there. See, and, and I've gotten used to that. Oh, are we going to sink or swim? You know, there's certain exhilaration about, hmm, you know, I wonder, you know, we're on the trapeze and there's no net. There's something about that that is exciting and also terrifying, too, because, you know, I just, you know, you don't know really what's going to happen in a live performance. Yeah. And as a creator, I don't know. I listen to things that I did that I have on CD and I go, oh, God, you know, I how could I have made that a little bit more of this or the mix or, you know, whatever. I, I don't I don't know that I'm always ever 100 percent satisfied that terrible i don't know if that's terrible no i don't think so i think that's very natural yeah i mean you know you're a creative person and you understand this so i'm sure you go through the same thing right oh for sure yeah well here's here's kind of a, a side question to that though because i i tend to struggle with this a little bit myself and i'm curious how you handle this and, and i'm really referring right now more to songwriting but when when is something done? When have you taken a piece and you're working on it and you go, okay, that's it. I'm done with it. I'm not putting any more changes. It's ready to go. Well, for me, it's a feeling. It's like I want to work it and work it and work it. And I always say in the songwriting situation for me, there I feel like there's multiple me's. You know, it's a strange thing. Like there's the writer in me that that has the ideas and feels what I want to say. Mm -hmm. And then after I get it all out there and start to put it together, I kind of allow that process to be there. And then a little bit later on, I start to become the editor and I start to come in and go, you know, Hey, I know you really like that word, but it's not working. You know, there's right. only so many words you can rhyme with girl or world, <laughs> right. you know, it's like, yeah. hello, you know, I know you really love that, but uh, sorry. So I also think that, that editor person in me, that's where I have to stay extremely objective. Mm -hmm. I have to be the, that person in that moment to go, no, it's not working. And so when I work it and work it and work it and work it, it doesn't feel trite, doesn't feel cheesy. It feels right to me. And not now I'm into the singing part of it because I am going to perform it in a studio. I'm going to record it. I have to, as a vocalist, I have to be able to say those words, sing it, make it sound right. And sometimes with writing songs, there are certain words that just are not good singable words, right? Sure. And there's yeah. certain phrases that don't quite connect. And so there's this this whole thing of like a trio in me that works together at one point or another. And then when I get into a studio situation, I pretty much, I am really a stickler about being prepared before I get into a studio. I do not go into a studio not knowing what I'm going to do. I mean really work it out so that because I know throughout the many years I've been doing this time and it's money and it's like the minutes are clicking on by and the more you know what you want the musicians are clearer the the uh, engineer is clearer uh, you can get the job done pretty fast oh absolutely 
I just did the song Greed Incorporated. And um, when we went into the studio, I had a budget, wasn't a lot of money. And I knew what I was dealing with. And I knew exactly what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so then when it became adding to the things that I wanted, I was uh, at the point where we were doing some additions in the in the studio. And, OK, that didn't work. Oh, do it like this, you know. But it was very little of that because I pretty much knew. And then when you hear those, when they're sending you those those um, recordings back, you know how it is. You get a chance to listen to it before it's been really mixed and you can hear where the adjustments need to happen. Hopefully it's not too much. Yeah. So we did it, we did it under budget by 250 bucks. Oh, that's fantastic. I was really happy with that. Well, I think uh, the real key to success in the studio is exactly what you said. It's being prepared. And and I think that, uh, you know, uh, maybe 40% of the money should be spent on capturing the right sound. If you're working with a live band 40% of it should be spent on the mix and master and 20% at most should be spent on the actual recording because you should know what you're doing when you go in. That should not be the thing that sucks up your budget. I agree. No, I totally agree with you. And by the way, when I say $250 shy of the budget, we only had $1,000 we were working with. Oh, okay. So that's 75% of your budget is all you really spent. Exactly. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I was able to put the rest of that into the creating of the video, the music video. Right. So, um, yes, you're absolutely correct. I think being prepared is just ultra important. And I think it makes everybody at ease when you know what you want. It just helps everybody. You know, it helps yeah. steer, it kind of helps steer the, the ship, so to speak. And I'm also really into wanting people to do what they do best. So I, the person that I chose for that particular piece, I just, I knew, and I had really kind of gone around who I was going to use as my engineer. I, I got very clear that he knew exactly what I wanted to do with this, the sound I wanted and the, uh, using as an example, a reference. And once I knew that I was completely convinced that this was going to be fine and we were going to go in and do it. We did it. I'm really happy with it. I have to say, I'm really, really pleased with that recording. So um, but you know, again, it's like, I've been submitting some songs for, uh, sync and music and mm-hmm. also TV. And I've been learning a, a heck of a lot about what to do as far as the production value. And so now looking at the songs that I've done in the past, I go, Oh, okay. You know, now I know a lot more than I did even a year ago about what would I do if I was really setting up my song to be in a sync licensing deal. Right. You know, to even be to even be recognized as a possibility of being in a sync license deal. So there's a, a bit of production there that's very different than just producing a song. Oh, absolutely. And and for those uh, who are listening who aren't familiar with sync licensing, basically there are uh, different media types. There's, you know, YouTube, there's movies, there's commercials, there's documentaries, all kinds of things, and they all need music. And sync is taking a piece of music and syncing it to a piece of video, whether it be for YouTube or movie or anything like that. And so there, that is now a huge market for artists, uh, for composers and, and uh, songwriters, because there's so many avenues now for uh, for the video market that the, all those avenues have also opened up for sync licensing. But, and, and Chandra, I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, 
it's a completely different world for a songwriter to write music that's being used for sync licensing versus just uh, radio play. Oh, boy, is it ever. And, you know, radio play now, because now we have Spotify and we have all these streaming things. It's a completely different world. It is. First of all, there are no recording companies that are, I mean, you know, in the 80s and even in the 90s, Capitol Records and things like this. But now it just that movement, that whole part of the business is so different now that actually the music supervisors for all these shows, whether it's TV or film or ads or podcasts or whatever it is, gaming these guys are the ones who are really making artists careers. Oh yeah. Um, so it's just like, it's a totally different world. And I've been fortunate enough to, to be learning a lot about that in the last four or five months. So now that's kind of influencing the production value for me. And that's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to see how the new stuff that I do, I've got a lot of songs that I want to produce this year. And in particular three, that I'm working on right now. One is going to have a music video accompanying it again. Very different than Greed Incorporated. By the way, if you're listening, Greed Incorporated, look it up. If you just put Greed Incorporated in YouTube, it'll come up. I'll do one better. I'm putting the link in the show notes. Ooh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Well, I think people should check it out. And and you actually went on, and when we met in person, uh, you were just like going around to all these different ceremonies where you were nominated for awards, like a ridiculous amount of nominations. Well, what we did was, you know, after I produced the song, I did everything I could to get everybody to go to my YouTube. I cleared my YouTube channel because I really wanted to focus on this. And this song is a social statement. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking how it's really different than anything I've ever done that anyone, especially here in Arizona, since we've been in Sedona, they do not know me as a heavy metal singer or songwriter. Okay. I mean, this is a complete heavy metal tune and it's not as heavy as some, but nonetheless, I don't sound at all like people know me as right. right. And it's a bit controversial because it is a social statement and some people politicize it and understandable, you know, you get art, you figure it out. You know what I mean? It's like, it's going to mean something and the music video. So I started thinking, well, how can I get this song out there? And because I coach and I do, I coach actors and singers and musicians and people who are on stage and uh, speakers, things like that. I was thinking, what would I tell one of my students? And I thought, well, you would probably tell them, um, look and see if there's any music video contests out there. So I did. And what I found out was they're all over the place. Oh yeah. They're all over the world. There's thousands of them. Thousands. And there's a lot of them are in film festivals. Mm -hmm. When I did the music video, I knew that I needed it to be very edgy. So uh, funny story. I, I actually took, I took it upon myself to take some advice from a, a person in the business who I adore. And she said, you know, you know what you need to do is you need to take this great song and make a music video and put it as much political stuff as you can in there. Just go on and you'll find pictures of someone. Well, it turned out I put this thing together and I had a weird feeling <laughs> in the pit of my stomach and I passed it along to one of my friends who is a, um, a copyright lawyer. Mm-hmm. And he goes, Sandra, 168 images, 168 lawsuits. You've got to go back and redo the whole thing. <laughs> And I went, are you freaking kidding me? There goes that $250. Yeah, I'm right. And I'm like, really? So what I did was, you know, we got on to Shutterstock and I I actually altered photos to try and 
I had the other one, so I used that as a reference. And then I made it a lot more, um, less political in the sense of faces of politicians, but more about the actual subject of greed. So when I did all that, that's when I started promoting it. And then I thought I should look up the music video contest and I did. So I was just, I just did a lot of research and figured out which ones I wanted to be in. And I entered into, I think it was 21. And I have now recently, I can look back. I, on a whim, entered a songwriting contest and won it. That was amazing. I went, I won it? Wow. Yeah. It's an, an online one. It's called American Tracks Music Awards. And I won that for heavy metal of 2019. That was hysterical. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. And then, and then I was, I've been in eight now film festivals. One was in Ireland. We went because we were uh, invited to stay with one of the founders mm -hmm. of the festival. That was amazing. We went to New York recently. Uh, we went to Vegas. That's when you and I met. Right. It's now in Virginia. I think it goes, actually, that will go in February. I think February 11th, it, it, it that whole festival will, um, they'll come up with who wins, you know. I won an award, finally, I won an award. It's a semi-finalist, but it is an award called the Bob Bossy Award from the, let's see if I get this right, Chicago Armacord Art House uh, Television Awards. Wow. Right, it was a television award. So that was pretty cool. Um very excited about that. So yes, it, I was able, I spent a, we spent a lot of money going around, but I have to tell you, it was fascinating and it was fun. It was fun to be a nominee. When you consider there's 800 people, maybe sometimes that are submitting music videos and you're one out of five or one out of three, that's pretty fun. I mean, it's like, wow. And to see it up on a big screen, it was like, oh my God, you know, like there in Vegas, you know, those, um, theaters there, I, Gosh, where do I buy the? I want to say not the Gold Nugget because that's downtown. Right. I have to remember where it was, but at any rate, it was this, it's this huge theater complex, and the theater was just big, and the screen was enormous with all the Dolby sound. And it was like, oh my god, my hair was flying, you know. And it was just great to see it like that. Well, you know, and as you get into more sync licensing, um, hearing your music in a theater, there is nothing like that experience. I mean. It's one thing if you arrange it yourself and you're going to do a showcase and you ran out of theater or whatever. But when you're when you put music in a movie and you're going to see the movie uh, and, and all of a sudden your piece comes on, like it, you just get the, the most giddy feeling in the world. Oh, I can only imagine. And I want to know that feeling, Scott. Oh, you will. I, I believe that you will. I really do. You know. And I, I really feel strongly, I was telling, I had a meeting today with my executive producer, Roland March, and I said, Roland, I just know that this song is going to be placed. I can feel it. It's going to be placed somewhere. I don't know how that's going to be. It may be a theme song to a streaming TV show. It may right. be, um, it's, it's got grit to it, so it could be in the background of something. It might be, who knows where it's going to end up, but I really feel strongly that it will and it's not a TV sync kind of song, you know. It's not a, um, it's not a Target song. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's not like that. It's not. It doesn't have that that whole uh, thing going on like in that direction. But I, I'm just excited about the whole Greed Incorporated thing of what the journey that I've been on with that. And when there's still more. Right now, I'm up for one in London. 
Oh, so we'll, I don't. I don't think I'm going to get in that one. And I am in one already that I can't even announce because I'm sworn to secrecy. Ooh. That one for sure, and that's a great one. And I will. They'll be making their announcement at the end of January. But the executive director pretty much spilled the beans to me. <laughs> I went, okay, cool. That's you know. sweet. But you know, the thing is, is that it's not even about writing a good song. I mean, the bar is so high on the production level these days because the equipment's uh, accessible now. Um, you can you could shoot an entire movie and edit it on your iPhone. Um, I know. And with, with decent quality, you know, something that you can actually transfer to a screen and it still looks good. So I think it's, a, you know, these days, I think it's a pretty big testament when you win because or, or even to be nominated because the competition is so oversaturated now. It is. I, I tip my hat to people who have been able to make money on Spotify. Like, yeah. wow. I mean, it is a full time gig. You know, I have to tell you, I mean, this is how I make my living is performing and producing and, you know, live stuff mainly and and also voiceovers and coaching and all that. And I have to tell you, last year, the focus it took to really promote this music video and to show up and to do all the things that we did with it. I remember turning around going, oh, my God, I've got to start working. You know? Yeah, right, right. Well, you get so focused on one thing that everything else uh, kind of falls by the wayside. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden it's like, no, I didn't show up to that thing because I'm I'm out there doing that. And with our business working the way that we are, we have to show up to stuff because people forget who you are. You know, people go, well, you're in a small town. Let me say something about Sedona. Sedona is filled with people in the business Mm -hmm. from New York, from L.A., from Vegas, people who have been around the block and then some and talented. You don't always see them. Because they're not always working here. And a lot of people aren't working here, too, because they're not maybe they're just, you know, they're not really doing the business part of that side. You know, I mean, you get used to having an agent or a manager, but you have to, if you're going to make a living at this, you, you really do have to know how to promote yourself, how to book yourself, how to show up got to show up all the time sure and you have to be a professional you know it just don't wait when you're in la and you're an actor let's say you're waiting a lot right you're waiting by your phone or you're waiting by an email to come through well i'm doing a, a portion of that because my business i do a lot on emails and stuff but i'm booking i'm booking tom and i i'm booking my other creative partner dev ross and i i'm booking myself um i'm producing things i'm creating my own work um, and selling those tickets, you know? Yeah. So there's times when people are not hiring us. We're actually doing that part ourselves. And that takes a lot of focus. And when you're not doing all that and you're focused somewhere else, like promoting your music video where they're not paying you and you're just going out there because you're following that road with promoting it and looking towards bigger stuff with the song, maybe for sync deals and whatnot, Oh, my God, you know, it takes so much focus. So when these artists go and they do this on Spotify, it takes a lot of focus. And I think a lot of people hire people to do that, you know? Oh, they absolutely do. I mean, there there are people uh, even on Fiverr that you can go to and they'll promote playlists and all that stuff. But I I have such a a hard time with that because I, I mean, I get it as a business person. I get it. But I want my audience to be organic. You know, I had uh, my email list was just under I think it was thirty five hundred. And then I dropped it down uh, substantially to like 
I think it was six under just under 600 because yeah, I had all these names and they came to me from a contest. They're not real fans. They weren't opening the emails, you know, and it costs me money to have, you know, X amount of people on the, the mailing list. So, uh, why am I spending money on these people that could care less about what I do? It doesn't yeah. make any sense. And I don't want numbers. I want engagement. Like I want people that are interested in what I do. I don't, I don't, care about boasting, oh, I've got 3,500 people on my email address. I want to be able to say, I have 3,500 people that are responsive. I get 98% open uh, rates on the email, 75% on the clicks, whatever it is. I want it to be real. And I just, I think that so much of what you see is just designed to look good. Yeah. You know, I wonder about that too. The thing though is when you're talking about a platform like that, I believe that the numbers matter, don't they? Because that's where if they can see that you've had that many hits or that many people following you or you're on different lists or whatnot. I mean, there is money there for creatives. You know, there are. Yes. Real that is a way. It, it, it does trick out the algorithm. Uh, of course. And, uh, and if you're hitting like ridiculous, like I, I'm not going to say Taylor Swift numbers, but if you're hitting like in the millions, they're going to notice that and they're going to start putting you on playlists and promoting. you. Yes, there is an advantage to doing that. Um, the problem I have with it as a, as an artist though, is the business side of me gets it, but the artist side goes, well, I don't care though. If those are people that are checking it out and they don't like it or they're not really fans, I'm I'm getting plays, but nobody's following me. Or uh yeah, I've I've had this one hit and then nothing else happened. You know, the it's it's not growing the career. It's you know, I and I've seen that a lot. I think that don't you think that as a creative that we do kind of struggle with different sides of stuff? Oh yeah. You know, I, I'm like, that's one of the things that I've been struggling was struggling a little bit with recently is, OK, I'm learning all this stuff about what's needed, let's say, for TV sync deals. Right. And it feels somewhat if I follow if I follow the pattern of what I hear that gets placed and forgive me because I'm, I'm not trying to make a, a terrible statement or something. But I just the writing is a little bit different than what the content is not necessarily always there do you know right. what i'm saying oh yeah yeah that may be that may be not the writer it may be what's being chosen that's probably what it is but the, nonetheless it's in the song and they're choosing those things right so the whistles and the and the you know percussion and the things that you that show up um i'm a content writer i like to write about i, well, I like to write about everything you know anything and everything depends on the project or what i'm what I'm working on or what's going on with me, you know, if it's a personal song. So it's been kind of a thing where I've had to go, well, okay, but you know, that's what, that's what they're doing. And what in production, people who are writing songs are writing them differently, knowing what the business is, is wanting, where's the demand, you know? So as a creative, you have to be flexible and I'm going, yeah, you know, I mean, these songs are uh, good enough to be out there and be picked up. And I think really what it is again is, is that the music supervisors are basically the editors choosing what's in that song that they want. 
to put into the into the commercial or into the trailer or you know what I'm saying? Well, there's there's that, but there's also the time pressures that they work under. They don't necessarily have hours and hours to go through all the songs that are at their disposal to pick the right thing. Sometimes it's about we have two hours before we have to get this out. So we find something that works. Uh, A lot of times it's, you know what, we really like this, but we don't have a version of it without vocals and we can't have vocals under the dialogue. So that's out. That's Um, right. But I, I'm kind of talking about, too, like the people and I don't know, maybe you haven't seen this, but uh, I see a lot of people where they'll have maybe 5000 or more people in their Facebook group or on Twitter, but nobody's responding. Nobody's engaging their content or uh, I'll see them on SoundCloud and they have 100,000 plays, but they've only got three people following them. And I'm like, that, it's not right. That tells me that they've done some kind of marketing thing that that addressed one issue, but isn't the whole package. Because if they had 100,000 plays, why isn't anybody following them? It just does not make any sense. Yeah, and I'll bet you that's looked at. You know, I'll bet you somewhere when someone's looking at that, if they're using that as a reason why they're going to choose that artist or whatever, or follow uh, not follow, but maybe pick them up for something. They're going right. to maybe look at that, you know, and I agree with you, by the way, I think it's, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know what is it that engages somebody other than just being authentic, which brings me to something that I wanted to mention tonight. Okay. I found this awesome plaque and this kind of goes into why would somebody follow you? I mean, why, <laughs> okay. right? why in the hell would somebody follow me? I'll just use myself. Because we are eye candy. Oh, wait, no, we're musicians. Well, <laughs> I mean, look, I know why people follow you. Why? Why the, would they follow me? Okay. Like, I know how they would, why they'd follow you. You're charming. You're intelligent. You do these great podcasts. You're, you know, you've got interesting guests. Hopefully I'm one of them. I don't know. Anyway. Oh, no, keep going. This is a good show. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you very much. But, but, you know, I think that there, there has to be a connection. If, if, if you're going to be beyond one hit song, I think that there has to be some kind of connection to the artists themselves, something that they're about or that they, the, something about them that just is endearing to you, whatever that quality is. That's right. Okay. Now when you're performing live, it's easy to capture that because they get to know you a little bit. Yeah. Well, not if you're working for 20,000 people. Okay. They get to know you as far as like you, but we also know there's a lot that goes with that, you know, the marketing thing. And that's the, it's a whole spin, you know, it's, it's a package, but let's just talk about why would somebody want to follow you? Well, yes, because you're likable, you're authentic. And I'm looking at this plaque. I found this thing and it's such a simple thing, but for anybody out there that has felt different, like they don't belong, mm-hmm. you know, like I know I've, I've, felt even in my own, not my circles, but in groups of different parts of my circle. Sometimes I have those moments where, you know, you feel outside. You're like, Oh God, you know, like I really am not feeling like I'm in someone else's movie. You know, it's like that kind of feeling. Yeah. And so there's this plaque and it says this, there is no one like you. That is your power. Hmm. And I thought, Oh my God, for me, even though I know that it was seeing it, and it, at the right moment. And I thought, yeah, my superpower, my, you have your superpower and I have my superpower. And that's why somebody is going to follow you because you may sing a song that somebody else sang, but you do it your way. You have your, you're authentic to who you are. 
And that is your superpower. And that I truly believe is why people follow who they follow. They atone up to as long as you are really being who you really are, you know, authentic. I I agree with that, but I'm also going to have to disagree with you on that. <laughs> Talk oh about a contradiction. God. Oh my God, I'm feeling so outside. No, I'm no, just kidding. Right. But but I definitely understand that that feeling of being in someone else's movie. I mean, when I first moved to California and I was going to these red carpet events and I'm like, yeah. I, I did not feel like I belonged in those rooms. Uh but the the interesting thing is that I think that people tend to follow people that are are fake. I mean, if you look at like let's let's say, and this is an extreme example, okay, but look at Madonna. Madonna yes. was a very calculated act from day one. And I love what she was able to accomplish by writing songs that she knew would be catchy, that she knew would uh, would get followers doing controversial things yes. specifically with media there or specifically with somebody there who would tell what happened at the party last night. Right. Uh, and, and look at look at the following she the following she had. And I think that these days, a lot of um a publicist and things really put together synthetic packages of people because they think that's what the public wants. And then you've got the, uh, you know, kind of that boy band angle of here's how we write a song that's going to be catchy, that people will not be able to get out of their head. And then they follow those artists without really thinking about who they are. It's just, I like that song. It's stuck in my head. I must like this artist. They're not even who they really are because they've been created by a publicist. Well, that's true. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. But remember something when they do make those people, whether it's synthetic or whatever, you know, and, and absolutely, I agree with you. I totally marketing is like it's all about the package, right? It's marketing. It's how you it's spawn. It's this and that. But it's always been that way. It really has always been that way. The big movie stars were made by those kinds of things as well, you oh, know? Sure. Um, yeah. And so I think that's part of the fame part of it. Okay. But there's a lot of people that are not famous that have huge followings of people. Mm, yeah. And that's what I'm referring to because with Madonna or these people that are humongous stars, they've got teams of people working on these things to, um, to get attention and to spin it. And, you know, there's no, there's no uh, news that isn't bad, you know, isn't good news. Right. And Madonna's it was like brilliant. She did everything she could to be controversial and made an entire career on that. Whereas people like me, I'd be running from that. I'm like, oh, my God, they've got a picture of me naked on the street. You know, right. Like she's like, yeah, let me get make, naked on the street. You know, because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, let them talk bad about me. Let them do. You know, I mean, she just did the complete opposite. And people were. They just found that so intriguing that somebody would be that rebellious. I mean, yeah, rock and roll has that kind of thing about it anyway. But boy, she made that really work. And I know she obviously, you know, this too. She had a team of people that were working with her to conjure up these things. And oh, for and sure. Yeah. But she was just brilliant at it. Whereas you look at someone like, say, Cher, and I kind of I, I, I have the opposite impression of Cher. I think that Cher is just always been who she is. And if you don't like me, I don't care. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. Although we don't we're not in her head, though. We don't know. What that's true. Is. But and that could be strategy as well. I mean, it's impossible to say. Yeah. But but I, I guess for myself. Uh, I just, I want everything to be natural and organic. I want to look back on any success that I've had and go, I created that because I was being true to myself, not because 
I said, here's a, a, an opportunity for me to dominate this part of the market. Now, the exception to that is when you're hired to do something, you're hired to write a piece of music for a film. That's not your music. You have to let that go and understand that you're writing a piece that you were hired to write. And uh, they want you because they want your style or your touch on it. But at the end of the day, that's not your music. Yeah, that's rough. It is. That's a hard thing to do. I've been really, I have been fortunate enough that when I've written for projects, um, I mean, I've done work for higher type stuff, but what you're talking about, I have not had too much of having to give it away. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I know what you're saying. And that, is, I think that's like, Ooh, that's, that's hard. Don't you feel that's tough? Now I'm going to interview you. Uh, <laughs> well, it's good to be on your show. Uh, yes, in, thank in, you. In the beginning, uh, very much so. I didn't understand that. I thought that they were hiring me because they like my music and they, they want my music in their film. To an extent, yes, that is true. But at the end of the day, it's about getting their film to show the way that they want it to be presented. And right. uh, I mean, you you have to learn where to uh, stand your ground, where to battle, where to let go. For the most part, you're going to let go. Yeah. And I've had some of that. And, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's either you do the job or you don't. Right. And there's been films that specifically because I knew uh, I, I didn't believe in the director's vision at all. It's, it very much went exactly in the opposite direction and, they, and we could not come to terms in our conversations. I would not take those jobs because I knew that all I was heading for was frustration. I wasn't going to want to promote the film and say, hey, I worked on this. And that's that's the big deal. But it's kind of like an actor. I mean, you're an actor. So if you're working for a director Mm -hmm. And the director says, I don't like the way that you're playing this character. Can we try this instead? Or here's how I want you to play it. It's no different. Yeah, that's, you know what? I've worked with a few directors like that. Um, not so much. I don't like what you're coming up with so much, but there are autocratic directors, you know? Yeah. Move here, do that. You know, now when you come in, you know, and I just, that's hard that's really difficult as an actor. I think the best directors are people that are actually actors that are direct, that know what that feels like to be in a creative space of an actor needs a space to be able to do that. And I, I hear what you're saying. Yes. I think it's best that you know who you're dealing with. And if you do not want to deal with that, you just don't take the job. Right. Easier said than done sometimes, especially with acting sure. because you know, people need, again, if they're doing this as they're living, they need to work. But I do think at one point in one's career, whether it's songwriting, like you're talking about working on team with people or somebody who has that vision or if you just if it's not gelling, yeah. I just don't I just don't do it. And I think it's really important at one point in our careers that we have to be very cautious and careful who we work with, because um, first of all, I think it's ultra important to be happy and to feel that you can be your full self creating whatever it is you're doing, whether it's acting or songwriting or I don't know, you know, even the writing of the music, whatever it is. So if that right there, if it's not gelling, I don't want it because right. I just figured it's going to be a big headache. And I've done a few of those and it, and it is a headache and you're miserable, right? You can't wait to get out of it. And that's just not a great place to be creating. Well, and, and the worst part of it is if you become known for it, if it actually becomes successful, then people are going to think this is who you are and exactly. they're going to want to hire you based on that. And that's not what you want. You did it to get through the gig. But 
don't you think yeah. too that a lot of people will just take those those gigs because you're always it's always pushed on to actors and musicians you always have to be working it doesn't matter just keep working and you don't want to be known as difficult because people will talk and your reputation will follow you and you won't get gigs uh, i think there's that people do a lot of the jobs that they do because of that stigma yes and i think they also do it because they just need to eat well there's that yeah you know, yeah. I mean, I think that when you're an actor and you're really doing it full time and that or even if you're t sub you're you're subbing in a way to make a living during the daytime or whatever, you know, whether it's serving or whatever you're doing while you're getting there. Right. right. Talking about like the beginnings. Right. Stuff. Um, I think that that I think that taking things is OK in the very beginning. But I do think that at one point you have to start asking yourself some really big questions. Yeah. Do I want to be associated with that kind of thing? You know, do I want to do that kind of role? Do I want to, am I going to want to work with that director? Am I going to, you have to, I mean, I just feel my best when I am working with people that I really respect. And I know that they feel mutual with me on that. Now, maybe, you know, maybe out there that's, I, I know it's not always the case. And uh, there are actors that are taking gigs all the time just to work. I don't, I don't know. I just, I'm in a place with myself right now where I just go, really, I, I want to work with people who are better than I am. I want to work with people who are really wanting me to be there. I want to work with people who understand the creative process and respect that, yeah. uh, respect actors and, and vice versa. You know, it's like I would expect from somebody, uh, that I would give, you know, as a creative, I'm going to, I would, uh, there's not anything that I expect from someone that I'm not willing to give, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons that I, I love that uh, you and Dev Ross are working together. And and for those of you who are listening, Dev Ross was my guest on episode 50 uh, with, with a really wonderful interview. And, and she and Chandra have worked together for years. Uh, but you have you guys have a very special chemistry because you've known each other forever. You've done a, an unbelievable amount of work together. Uh, it, it, there's probably, I would imagine if one of you came to the other one and said, Hey, I've got an, an idea for a new show. I don't think either one of you would go, Oh my God, what is this now? <laughs> you know, I think it would be excitement. And Well, yes. I mean, I have to say that we, we have done a lot together uh, we started working together in shows that we were cast together. Mm -hmm. And then we noticed the chemistry and to be quite frank with you, I'm the one who pushed her. <laughs> She'll tell you this. <laughs> I'm pushing her. It's like, we've got to write a show together. We have to have a show for us. You know, we, we really have to do this because, yes, I, I think it's rare when you find a chemistry. Um, I've only had this kind of chemistry, I'm going to say, three times in my career. Wow. I, really. I have that with Tom, who just happens to be my husband. Yeah. It's a very strange thing because his background is legit musical theater and mine is rock and roll. Right. But when we come together and sing together we were just just did something yesterday, uh, a big song that somebody had written who's here in town, really big, big song. And it is it does lean more towards a very legit big sound, which is fantastic for Tom's voice. And so I lean more that direction when we're working and doing a song like that. But he does done the same thing if we're singing a song, let's say, like when I fall in love or when it's a, a song that's a little more pop, he can lighten up. There's a chemistry there. With Dev and I, we have that in a different way. We have that in a way that we we both are, uh, we both, it is actually it's very similar. We both really do feel the vibe. 
You know, it's like it, you either have that or you don't. It, it's something that clicks on stage and off stage where the person really knows you. I mean, you really get that person. Right. And so with Dev, I just I just kind of pushed her <laughs> and we created this show called Hot Flashes on the Trail, which is a, a really fun show and has actually it starts off as a comedy, but it really isn't a comedy because halfway through it takes a 180 and we get to portray two historical figures in the West who were extremely predominant and female in the West in the 1800s, which is really amazing because in the 1800s, women didn't have the choices that we have now, not even close. I mean, it was either you were a teacher or you were a household type person like a maid. Right. Yeah. Or if you were married, if you were lucky, you were married and they had some money and you had and you you know, had kids and that sort of thing, a family, or you are a prostitute. And that's pretty much all it was. Right. Or, or, and you spent, you know, half of your day as the housewife churning butter and baking bread yes, and that, that was, sort of thing. Like that was your life. Right. But if your husband happened to pass away, like shot or something out there in the wild West, mm -hmm. you were pretty much trying to figure out how the heck you were going to, you know, make it work. Right. And so we portray Annie Oakley, who came from very humble beginnings, real poor, and also the other one is Calamity Jane, who most people don't realize that the Calamity Jane we're used to seeing in the movies is not the real Calamity Jane. Calamity Jane also came from very poor beginnings, but was a very tortured soul. Mm. And um, both very powerful women. Annie Oakley was, the, I think, probably one of the only female millionaires and certainly the highest paid in the Buffalo Bill show uh, and an incredible skilled sharpshooter. And she was amazing. She was an amazing person. And in the show, there's also something that does happen to, to Annie Oakley that I think a lot of people don't know. Um, she was up against uh, Hearst with a, a fake story that hit the news of someone who was portraying her and they bought into the fact it was her. Wow. And she had to fight really hard to get her reputation back. And it took her like seven years. And, it, and, it, and it, I really do think it ruined her emotionally. It didn't ruin her as far as her sharpshooting, but it did a number on her. And she wow. died early, I think, because of it. I, it was extraordinarily stressful, but she was going to stand her ground and she did win, finally. But it, she lost everything, pretty much. And then you've got somebody like Calamity Jane, who was just kind of a, a calamity. You know, she was <laughs> right. just kind of like really... Uh, Stories were made up about her, and that's the legend of Calamity Jane. But the real Calamity Jane was abused. She was a woman who was not overtly attractive. She worked in some of the same shows that Annie Oakley did, but Annie Oakley was a very attractive woman, a very small woman, like short, you know, and petite. And uh, no, Calamity Jane was a big woman. She had kind of a masculine way about her, and she was a heavy drinker. And she pretty much was a, a full-blown-out alcoholic. So the story is fairly tragic in that she has the same skills, but because of the way that she looks and she that demeanor starts to, you know, she probably feels very ousted and all the different things that happened to her, the abuse and everything, and she toughened up in a different way than right. Annie Oak. Mm -hmm. And so two different women with two different paths. And so the show... It really does take this huge turn. People are pretty much ambushed. They really don't know what they're in for. And it does speak a lot 
for the, in a way, the Me Too movement, not in a way that um, is political, but in a way that it shows the empowering of women. Mm-hmm. Women who actually, because in the show, the two characters, basically, uh, just the synopsis is uh, the two girls are part of a show with two guys and an accompanist, and the two guys don't show up. And as an audience member, you find out that they're kind of stranded. They don't have their male actors with them. So they decide to recruit someone from the audience, a shill, of course, who is their accompanist. And now they figure, well, the guys aren't going to show up, so let's just do the show anyway. And they try and portray all the male roles in a melodrama with the female. (laughs) And the female roles are classically femme fatales and, you know, powerless and then there's the villain. I get to play the villain and we both try and play the hero. And it basically becomes a complete mess up. I mean, it's a complete screwball mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, exits and entrances and mustaches falling off and all kinds of crazy things that happen. And the songs that I wrote for this show is it's a wonderful script that Deb wrote. And I wrote the music. The songs are making little social statements, but in a fun way. Mm-hmm. Um, the femme fatale song is, is just, you know, poor pitiful me. You know, poor, poor, pitiful girl, I think it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can't remember my own songs. We're putting that show back up in March, by the way. You must come to it. We're gonna Oh, I would love to. But anyway, I guess my point is is that we these two characters actually decide, wait a second, let's do our own show. Mm-hmm. Why are we trying to do this? Let's do our own show. And that's when it turns to the show that they create. And then at the end of the show, the boys are finally coming back to the show. They get a telegram saying the guys are coming back and they decide now, nah, you know what? Let's keep our own show. <laughs> right. Cause we could do it without, you now. Yeah. It's like, let the guys do their own show. <laughs> you know, I like what we did and there's lots of strong women in the West. So it really is an empowering show for women and men love it because the first half of the show is crazy. It's about hot flashes and all kinds of crazy things that happen to these girls under the stress sure. that they're under. But we see the two characters changing and actually embracing their power as women and as individuals, not just as women, but as individuals who happen to be women. Right. And so there's a lot to talk about. And we've had a lot of uh, mothers and and daughters come to this. What we would love to do with this show, uh, besides we're getting it, we're really hoping to get it published this year after we do the next run. This will be our fourth run of the show. Wow. Um, yeah, we're really pleased and we've added quite a bit, you know, the last time we now have multimedia and stuff that I put in and it changed some songs up and whatnot. But what we would like to do is do some off Broadway or maybe, you know, expound it, you know, get it bigger or just do a, a theater run, do dates, different yeah, theater, right. regional, theater, that sort of thing and get it out there. I think it, I think the message is really timely and it does create conversation with moms and daughters and women Mm-hmm. specifically and men too you know it's not just it's it definitely is not a male bashing thing so nothing like that well thank you um yeah. <laughs> right but I, do, do you think uh obviously not necessarily in this show but do you think that a lot of times if a woman is coming into uh you know struggling with situations or whatever and then she survives them at the end that it's automatically considered a woman's empowerment thing instead of just a human's journey to success it's funny that you mentioned that. Oh. I think there, I think that there is that. Um, the reason I say that is because I just, we just did a program. Tom and I opened a program yesterday, and there's a woman who is a dog handler in the military, 
And she talked about being one of the only, she was like the only female in her group. And she had to work much harder. Now they don't look at her as a woman. They look at her as a soldier. Right. And I thought that was really interesting because I think, and I never really was aware of this until, I mean, I've been in business for a really long time. I would, I'm going to say maybe 20 years ago is when I really started to kind of get a grasp on that because I'm a techie mm-hmm. and because I run sound and can set up sound and have done sound for other bands and, and festivals and stuff besides our own. I just, you know, I've been up against, like we went, one time we're setting up for a show, a big festival, and I'm running the sound. And these guys come with a big truck, you know, and it all folds out like a stage and everything. And they walk up to my husband, he's carrying the equipment. And uh, they go, hey, you know, well, what kind of gear do you have? You know, because I, you know what, you want to talk to the sound person who's right over there. She goes, the chick. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and I think that we're getting beyond that. But I do still think that we are up against it. I do still think that that is maybe in a story like that. Of course, you know, it has to, a lot has to do with the writing and the way you would direct it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's going to be seen that way. But I do kind of think that, yes, especially now, especially because there's a lot to do with female empowerment and women showing their strength. It's okay now to be a strong woman. Right. Well, and and even in the superhero movies, you see a lot of that, you know, looking back at, you know, Avengers, Hunger Games, movies like that. And, And I'm glad, but I mean, we really actually had that back with Alien, if you think about it. Yes. But I I guess there's that part of me that's like, oh, great, this is you look at this. This is a big moment in history. This is the first time a woman did this or was able to do that or or whatever the thing is. And there's another part of me that says, but you know what? If we stop drawing attention to it, maybe people will stop thinking it's odd and everyone will just get to do everything because we're not pointing out how different it is. Right. There's a balance, right? Yeah. I don't think we're, we're not there yet. No, but we have made a lot of, of forward movement. I mean, even, even if you look back to movies in the 80s where women were, you know, nine to five is a perfect example of how offices work back then. Violet, go get my coffee. I'm the man. I make the decisions. I don't care how smart you are, what you contribute. It's yes. all going to be about making me look good because I'm the man. And I'm so glad that we're not that society anymore. But yes, we do have a long way to go uh, before. I don't know if we'll ever have equality. I hope so. Well, I will tell you this. There's a movement right now that is working in the film industry. And there's, I don't know if you know who Maria Geis is. She's working with um, a bunch of actors did a bunch of female actors did a movie, a documentary. And it was called, I think it's called this changes everything. It's a mm-hmm. fabulous documentary. If you get a chance to see it, Gina Davis is behind it. Oh, okay. Gina Davis is really involved in this movement to educate all these different, uh, everybody basically about the very thing you're talking about. And that is this, the film industry used to be run by women, but once there was money involved, it was, I mean, this is the truth. It was basically taken over by men mm. and women were ousted out Okay, and they became in these very minute roles and all of the roles that you would see were all the better roles were men. And not too long ago, this was has been continuing. A matter of fact, in that documentary, they talk about the fact that one percent of all directors and maybe it's changed in the last year because they're really advocating this. One percent of all directors are women. 
Yeah. That's a very small margin, right? And, and for, for a long time, it was just Penny Marshall. Exactly. You know, right? and then, uh, who was it? Catherine, Catherine Bigelow, I think was the one that directed, uh, what was a war movie? I can't think of which one now, but she got some awards for it. And Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. Yes. Things started to to open up a little, but I, I guess I, I, I do like the fact that there is a lot of male support. And when I hear, you know, more specifically about Hollywood where men are saying, um, yeah, I know I agreed to do this film, but I just found out that my co-star is getting a lot less pay because she has a vagina and right. that's not cool with me. You know, well, you're going to fix them. that or we're not yeah. doing this movie and I'll I'll find a legal way to get out of the contract or whatever. I love that. But it just it also makes me sad that here we are in 2020 still fighting these same stupid battles. I know it is sad. I do think it's slowly changing. Like the channel FX, they mm-hmm. are now what they call 50 50. Mm-hmm. And if you watch that channel and we do and we've seen some amazing things like that's where the Fosse and Verdon series was on and the gal that played um, Gwen Verdon, she won an award. She won a a Golden Globe just the other night. Michelle, I'm trying to remember her last name, but I'll tell you what, they have gone 50-50. There are different countries that have gone 50-50, which means you are going to hire women. You're going to pay them the same, and you're going to have women directors and women actors with great roles Mm -hmm. as much as it is the other direction with men. And I think it's it is changing. It is changing. It's getting better. And until I really truly think that, in, 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 looking at it altruistically, I, I trust that it will change so that we will not be thinking male female. We'll just be saying that's a great director, you know. Right. Well, yeah. That's that's the goal. Is it shouldn't be this is a great female director. It's this is a Act- great director. Yeah. Right. I mean, we still have best actress don't we? Yeah. And we still have best actor. So we are in that sense, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, we're not in the same category there. And I get it. And so what you and I are talking about is we just, we just haven't come that far, you know, yet, you know, but we're, we're working on it. And I think it is, I think it is better. I do think it's better. I, I guess I just, I can't fathom the amount of times in a day that I say, why is this still a thing? I know, <laughs> you know, it, it just seems like we should be so much further uh, along in, in things that make sense than we are. And I'm glad that we're, we're making progress, <laughs> but it just baffles my mind that we're still so far away from, you know, where, know. where we should be at. Listen, I could, I could, don't get me started. I could talk about <laughs> a lot of stuff, but I think I'm like, oh, OK, now we're getting somewhere here. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's times when I go like, I cannot believe you know, that we have not had a female president, like seriously, you know, I mean, go like, what is up with that? There's the, there's a queen in England, you know, there's been prime ministers that are women. I just, so, I mean, I, I am always blown away by the fact that we are just where we are, Yeah, you know, I agree in our own society. And it just, hopefully this will all somehow we'll all grow up and this will be something of the past. And we'll look in the, we'll look back on and go, Oh my God. Do you remember when? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really hope so. And uh, while we were talking, I was looking it up and it was the Hurt Locker was the one that Catherine Bigelow had directed, uh, which, okay. uh, I mean, that's, okay. that was a, a pretty brutal movie as I recall. And to, to have a, uh, you know, a woman who you would think doesn't really understand what war was because you guys were in the kitchen and being dainty, um, mm. you know, to have a woman direct a very powerful and graphic movie like that. 
I think that's awesome. But again, I think it should have just been, hey, who would be good to direct this? You know what? Catherine yes. Bigelow is a really good director. We should get her. That's right. Instead that's of it true. being, let's find, or or we had a female director on this. Isn't that something? Right. Right. No, I, I totally agree with you. And that is what that whole movement that Gina Davis is doing right now. They're really working heavily on that. Yeah. You just recognize the person's talent. It doesn't matter what you know what gender they are. It doesn't just right. doesn't matter. Now, you know? Other than things that are very gender specific, like I don't other than Arnold Schwarzenegger, I don't expect to have a man in a in a movie, you know, giving birth. There are things that make sense as to as to how the world works. But as far as right. there's so many things that that just, you know, like if a movie takes place in America and you hire a British actress, uh, they have to lose their accent. Well, I don't know if that's so realistic. I mean, we have people that live in America from all over the world. Why would it be odd if they had a British accent? <laughs> True. <laughs> that know. is true. You're right. I don't know. That's very funny. All right, folks. In two weeks, episode two of Chandra's interview will appear in your player. If you're subscribed, please subscribe, please share, please rate. Uh, if you would like to donate and help me out in putting this podcast on, you can go to my website, uh, www.scotthaskin.com. Click the podcast link and there is a donate button at the bottom. You can also send me a PayPal. If you would rather do that, email me. The donate button does go through PayPal, but if you'd rather do it direct, we can do it that way too. Thank you guys so much for hanging in there with another episode. I will be back next week with my NAM roundup and then the week after episode two with Chandra. Thank you guys for coming out and enjoy. Drive safe. Cheers. Cheers.